0: Cornerstone, whether you are joining us on one of our five campuses or watching online or reading this as a part of CF Insight, welcome, 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 welcome. It is good to be with you today. Uh, Today, we are going to pick up right where we left off last weekend in James chapter one. So go ahead, grab your Bible, open your Bible app and turn there now. And if you remember last weekend, James, uh, who's the younger brother of Jesus, he wrote this letter to a group of Uh, Jewish people who had become Christian. They had chosen to follow the way of Jesus. And all you have to do is get a couple verses into James' letter and you will quickly discover that James is a straight to the point kind of guy. Like there is no sugarcoating things with him. Uh, You won't have to read between the lines. He gets straight to the point and he says it like it is. And so in true James fashion, I decided that I would get straight to the point, too, and to summarize all that we're about to read in these five verses. Okay, here is my one-sentence sermon, although don't get too excited because I'm going to say more after this one sentence. You're like, I would come to church more often if they were all one-sentence sermons. Well, stick with me. But if I had to narrow down this passage into just one phrase, it would be this. Doing makes all the difference doing makes all the difference. Anyone who's ever tried to lose weight, you know that this is true. I mean, you don't lose weight simply by having a gym membership. You'll lose money, not necessarily weight. You don't lose weight by thinking about eating healthy. No, the only way you're gonna start losing weight is by doing something about it, right? To start exercising and developing better eating habits. Every kid has experienced this statement being true because you don't get credit for cleaning your room simply because you spent time in your room after your mom told you to clean it. No, you don't get credit for cleaning your room simply because you told her you cleaned your room. Why? Because you actually have to clean it. My husband Garrett and I, we will often get in friendly disagreements, let's call them, about doing the laundry. Because I'll say something like, uh, hey, I did the laundry today. And then he'll be out in the garage and he'll notice that there were clothes that were washed and then they were put in the dryer and are technically dry, but they have yet to be folded and put away. And so he'll come in and he'll say, you did not do the laundry. Like everything's still in the dryer. And I'll be, he's like, you started the laundry. I'm like, What are you talking about? I totally did the laundry. I didn't say I was gonna fold the laundry. I didn't say I put away the laundry. I just said I did the laundry. I totally did it. And then it breaks out into a long conversation where we're trying to actually define what doing the laundry means, and it usually ends with us agreeing to disagree, although let's be honest, I did the laundry, okay? I did the laundry. I get proofread. I'm like, okay, you get credit for doing the dishes just because they're out of the sink and now in the dishwasher. I don't make you load the dishwasher, wash it, and put them all away before you said that you did the dishes. See, that's a good argument. Okay. Anyways, you don't need to, you don't need to worry about, about our, our marital issues here. Well, let's keep going. The point of these things is what? The doing, right? It's the taking action part because doing, it makes all the difference. And this is what James is going to be talking to us about today. So hopefully you've found James chapter 1. We're going to start reading in verse 21. James writes this. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. Okay, let's pause there because I think it's easy for us, for, for those of us in the church, to look around and be able to identify the moral filth, the evil that is so prevalent in the world, right? It's easy for us to point out all that is wrong around us. And to be honest, I think that's why the church often gets the reputation of being judgmental. But you see, it's important to remember who James' audience is here, right? He's writing this letter to a community of Christ followers, He's not writing to unbelievers, but to believers. He's not writing and telling us to look outside of the church, but to look inward. If you are here today and you've never made the decision to follow Jesus, I'm so glad you're here and you're exploring what that could mean with us. I hope you keep coming back. But you should know these instructions that James gives us, they're not meant for you. He is not going to hold you to the things that he says here. However, for those of us who have made the decision to follow Jesus, James is speaking to us when he says, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. And then he continues on. He says, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save your souls. Now, if you're reading from the NIV translation of the Bible, which is what I'm reading from, it actually says, which can save you. Uh, but every other translation of the Bible says, which can save your souls. And that's because in the Greek, the original language that the book of James is written in, it has this little word, um, soukes, which is translated in English as souls. And I don't know why the NIV left this word out, um, but a literal, more correct translation would be, uh, when you humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save your souls. You see, James here, he's giving us a word picture He's saying that all of us who are believers, anyone who would call themselves a follower of Christ, we have the word, we have the truth of God that has been planted inside of us. Maybe you've been coming to church, maybe you've been reading your Bible, you have some of God's word, his truth planted in you. And James is saying in order for there to be this, uh, this preservation, this, this restoration, this healing of our souls... In order for there to be this thing that happens inside of us that transforms uh, those things around us, that transforms what happens outside of us, we have to receive, we have to accept, we have to embrace the word that God has planted in us. This idea of humbly receiving the word that has been placed in us, it makes me think of transplant surgery. My dad had a corneal replacement surgery this past fall. He's actually had several of these surgeries over his lifetime. And they do the surgery, they put in the new cornea, and then it's up to sometimes an 18-month recovery period where they're waiting to see if his eye, if his body actually accepts this new cornea. And if it does accept the new cornea, his sight will be restored. His eye will again be able to function the way it was designed to function. But if his eye rejects this new cornea that's been put in, he will either have to live without being able to see very well from that eye uh, or, or he'll have to try again and have another surgery and hopefully accepts that one. And James is saying that this same type of thing happens to us in a spiritual sense with our souls. For anyone who believes in Jesus, God's word has been transplanted into us. And and just like a body can accept or reject an organ, we can accept or reject the word that is in us. So how do we know if we've accepted the word? Well, the proof is in the transformation. Right, just as my dad knows that his eye has accepted the new cornea when his sight is transformed, when it begins to improve and he can start to see better and better and better every day. James says we will know that we've accepted the word planted in us when our lives begin to be transformed, when we see change. And then he talks about the type of change that will happen in us. This next verse, uh, verse 22, it's actually the overarching theme for the entire book of James. If you want to know what the book of James is all about, memorize verse 22. James says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Okay, the Greek word here for, or a phrase for deceive yourselves, it literally means you've reckoned wrongly. It's a mathematical term, which I know nothing about. But for those of you who like math, James is saying, if you only listen to the word, but you never actually do what it says, then you've added up all the numbers, but you've come to the wrong conclusion. He's saying there's an error in your equation. See, remember, James, he's talking to a group of Christian Jews, and they're known for how well they know the Bible. Right? They they are even known for for having much of the Old Testament memorized, committed to memory, yet they do nothing about it. And James, he's addressing a myth that they believed that's actually still a myth that is very common among Christians today. The myth is this: the more I know, the more I'll grow. Right, We believe this to be true. The more I know, the more I grow. And this myth, it causes us to believe that because I show up to church every weekend and I hear truth taught from the word of God because I, I take really good sermon notes or I nod my head in agreement with what the pastor's saying or I say, hmm, right? Then, then I'll be able to walk out of here and, and I will be able to be deeply changed. I'll walk out of here growing in my relationship with God. It's this myth that causes us to believe that because I read my Bible or I go to my community group, I even engage in discussion at community group, that I will then leave. And by that alone, I will somehow have my soul transformed. I'll be growing in my relationship with God. And James would say, no, not exactly. Merely hearing or knowing the word, even talking about the word is not what leads to soul transformation. Just think about it, the greatest Bible scholars of Jesus's day, like the ones who knew the most about scripture, are the guys who crucified him. Knowing is not equal to growing. Now, please hear me out, like before you send any emails to Pastor Steve, I am not saying that coming to church or taking sermon notes or reading your Bible or going to community group are bad things. In fact, they are great things. I would even say they are necessary things. We cannot do without them. We need to hear the word. We need to listen to the word. We need to read the word. We need to know the word. But if we think that's where it ends, James would say, we're deceiving ourselves. Do not merely listen to the word. We have to take it one step further. We have to do what it says. We have to apply it to our lives, these principles, these commands that we read in God's word because doing is what makes all the difference. And James, he then gives us a metaphor uh, to help us explain and understand this further. Look at verse 23. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. You know, every morning we wake up, we go to the bathroom, and the very first place you look is where? In the mirror. In the mirror. Right? You look in the mirror. And every morning our reaction is the same. (laughs) And what do we do after we see the travesty that has taken place to our face and our hair while we slept? We fix it. Right? We take a shower. We brush our hair. We put product in it. We style it. We put lotions and creams on our faces. We put makeup on our face. Not everyone puts makeup on their face, but a lot of us. We put makeup on our face. I mean, just think about the sheer volume of tools and products that you have in your bathroom, like scattered everywhere that are simply for the purpose of helping you do something with what you see in the mirror in the morning. And James tells us, hey, merely listening to the word and saying wow, yeah, that's good. Or or saying, you know, that is so true. Oh, I was convicted by that. Like, it just really made me think. But then actually doing nothing with what we heard, it would be the same as looking in the mirror in the morning and saying, "Ooh, dang, and then choosing to do nothing about it. Like, we would never do that physically. I mean, I'm a mom of two young kids and the amount of time I have every morning to fix what I see in the mirror has drastically decreased over the years. But like at the very least, even on my worst days, I will brush my hair or I'll put it up in a ponytail. Sometimes I don't brush my hair. Uh, I'll put on like semi clean clothing and I'll take my makeup with me as I head out the door. Like some days I'm able to spend more time getting ready than others, but every day at the very least I'm doing Something. I wonder if maybe we spend more time fixing what we see in the bathroom mirror every day than we do looking into the mirror of our own hearts and fixing the blemishes and the flaws that we see there. I wonder if sometimes we spend more time each day looking at others and identifying the flaws, uh, the things that need to be changed in their lives, more than we spend time looking inward and asking the Holy Spirit to show us, hey, what are the things that need to be changed in my life? James would say, if you're just listening, if you're just hearing, you're deceiving yourselves. And then he continues on. Look at verse 25. He says, but whoever looks intently. Okay, notice that word intently. It's the Greek word updu, and it means to stoop down and focus on. To stoop down and focus on. See, James isn't talking about glancing in the mirror as you walk by. He's not talking about like taking a quick look and then leaving. No, he's talking about looking and then lingering. Right, getting closer, leaning in more, focusing even more. Have you ever used one of those magnifying mirrors? You know what I'm talking about? Some ladies like, oh my gosh, I hate that thing. It's the best, but I hate it. Yeah, they're, they're, sometimes they're on like the wall at, uh, in like hotel bathrooms, and it's usually like a round mirror, and sometimes it even has like a light going around the border, and on one side, you like look in it, and it's zoomed in. And then you flip it over and it's like mega zoomed in. I mean, you just see like every last bit of your face in that thing. Like anytime I look into one of those things, I'm like, oh my goodness, when did I start growing a goatee? Like, and I'm like, I immediately got to deal with this. Why didn't no one tell me? And anytime we look into a mirror like that, we have this feeling, this dread come over us. Like, I'm not gonna leave until I get this right. I'm gonna do whatever it takes to fix it. And that's what James means by looks intently. And then he continues on. But whoever looks intently at the perfect law. I mean, the law, God's word, it is perfect. This book, these words, they are not something that we can pick and choose from and say, you know, I like this, but I don't really like that. I, I like what this part does for me, but I'm not digging that part, so I'll just ignore it. You know, I would drastically have to change something in my life in order to obey that part, so I'm just going to act like I never read it. James would say, no, you can't do that. Actually, it should be the other way around. As we read, as we hear the words, the, the words should look at us. They should look at our heart and say, you know what? I don't like that. I like this, but that needs to go. And we do something as a result. James continues on, he says it's a perfect law, a perfect law that gives freedom. I don't know about you, but right off the bat, I think, wait, how can a law bring freedom? Like those two words shouldn't go together. And that's because generally we define freedom in negative terms, right? Freedom is the absence of restrictions, However, in ancient cultures, in, in the culture of those that James is originally writing to, they viewed freedom in positive terms. The positive definition of freedom is that you are free when you've been released to become who you were always meant to be. One of the best metaphors I can think of to explain this further is a fish. A fish. And I know if you were here last weekend, you're like, seriously, another fish illustration? Like, stick with me, okay? Stick with me. Fish, as we all know, are restricted to water. But, you know, let's say I decide that's not fair. That's not fair that a fish should have to be restricted to water. Like, like Dory should be able to experience the land just like we do. And so I I decide to catch a fish and throw it onto the ground and declare that it is now free from its restriction of water. We all know if I did that, I would be killing Dory, right? Like I would be killing the fish. While I may have freed it from its restrictions, unless the fish is restricted to water, it can't be itself. Like in water, the fish is alive, it's vibrant, it's agile, it's quick, and that's because the fish was created, it was designed to be restricted to the water. See, in the water, the fish is actually free. Church, lean in here. We can't miss this. Freedom is not living with the absence of restrictions. No, true freedom is living within the right restrictions so that you can be who you were meant to be. Living within the right restrictions so that we can be who we were meant, who we were designed, who we were created to be. And although this sounds like a paradox, I think if we're being honest, we each know how undeniably true this is. I started off 2019 by doing a 30-day cleanse. Uh, clean eating, I no gluten, no dairy, no sugar, just to name a few things. And two days before my cleanse ended, we hosted a party for the big football game that happened earlier this month. Now, I'm from the Midwest. And if there's one thing that we Midwesterners know how to do, it is how to eat an enormous amount of food that is horrifically bad for your health, okay? Like take the Oreo for instance. Not the best choice like when it comes to a healthy cookie, but Midwesterners would say, you know what's a good idea? Let's take the Oreo, let's dunk it in funnel cake batter, let's deep fry it, and then add hot fudge and vanilla ice cream to it. Yeah, that's a really good idea. We just escalate things. Well, a favorite appetizer for the big game in my house is queso, but I'm not just talking about like store-bought jar of queso. No, we Midwesterners, we make our own authentic queso. And it starts by taking a brick of Velveeta cheese. (laughs) Yeah, brick should not be a word you use to define actual cheese. Uh, You take a brick of Velveeta cheese and then you add a can of diced tomatoes and green chilies. And then you add an entire pound of ground breakfast sausage. And then, you know, just for good measure, to top it off, you throw in a block of cream cheese as well. And um, I'm sure you can understand how this queso was just too good to pass up. And so I made the decision to divert from the restrictions of my cleanse so that I could enjoy the freedom of eating whatever I wanted to. And that's exactly what I did. I enjoyed that freedom. That is, until the next morning. I'm just gonna leave it at that. You get where I'm going. Oh yeah, oh yeah. You see, my perception of freedom in one moment and my decision to act on it led to the opposite of freedom shortly thereafter. But you know, when I eat healthy, when I'm exercising, when I'm aware of what goes into my body, I I have more energy. I sleep better. I feel better about myself. I just feel good in general. Like these restrictions actually lead me to greater freedom. And I could go through example after example of this. Even some that we don't necessarily like to talk about in church, right? Like take money, for instance. When I was younger, my parents taught me to tithe, to give money to God, and to also save, to put money away in the bank. And then only after those two things were done first could I then spend the rest. And so whether I earned $1 or $10 or $100, 10% would go to God, 10% 10% would go into my savings account and the rest I would use to buy Beanie Babies that were going to make me very wealthy one day. It didn't quite work out, although I still have all of my Beanie Babies. They're in my parents' basement. And, but the restrictions that they taught me on money with 20% of my income is something that I've held on to even as an adult. Now, this was way more easier to do with dimes than it is to do with thousands of dollars but I can tell you that the result has been financial freedom for my family and I. And I'm in ministry. My husband is a middle school math teacher. We haven't made a ton of money in our lifetime. But because of these restrictions that we have applied to our life, it allows us to not have any debt. It it has caused us to become increasingly more generous people. We, we experience freedom because we aren't so focused and controlled by money and always needing to have more. Sex is the same way. When I was younger, I was told true love waits. Right There's rings and shirts you could buy. I was told don't have sex until you're married. And then I thought that was restrictive, especially as a teenager but I've been married for eight years now and I I know the benefits of this because my mind and my body are free from potential mistakes I could have made in my past that would have put restrictions on my marriage in the present. You see, the reality is freedom is not about the absence of restrictions. Freedom is living within the right restrictions so that you can be who you were meant to be. In church, who knows better what those right, right restrictions are that, that align us with who we've been created to be than God, our Creator? I mean, that's why He gave us His Word. And this is the heart of what James is writing, why he's writing these things. He isn't trying to be some like rule enforcing tyrant. He isn't trying to set standards that are impossible to achieve. No, even look back at verse 21 where he says, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. I mean, it seems harsh and like in your face when you first read it. But he isn't saying this to be judgmental or condescending. James, he's saying this out of a heart of genuine love for his brothers and sisters in Christ because he knows that these things, they prevent us from living in alignment with who we've been created to be. And James here, he's actually just repeating what his big bro Jesus said. In his famous Sermon on the Mount found in the book of Matthew, Jesus spends three entire chapters telling us what to do and what not to do. He, in this sermon, he talks about anger, lust, forgiveness, money, worry, judging others, and so much more. And then to end this sermon, in Matthew 7, Jesus says this. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. And the rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Church, when Jesus tells us what to do and what not to do, his goal is not restriction, it's freedom. His goal is freedom. For example, when Jesus tells us to forgive others, he is saying that to us. He is commanding us to do that for our own benefit. Why is it for our benefit? Because we are made in the image of God and God is a God who forgives And so anytime we hold on to a grudge, it might feel good in the immediate, but if we continue to hold on to it, we'll be like a fish that demands to have their freedom on land. We'll begin to experience the opposite of freedom because we will be violating who we've been created to be. When we do what the word says, not only will we experience freedom, but look at what the rest of verse 25 says. Here's what else James says that we can experience. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Last weekend in the passage we studied, James told us that those who endure trials will be blessed. And here he is using that word again. He says they will be blessed in what they do. It's a word that implies being fulfilled, being satisfied, being content, being at peace. Man, I love this word, blessed. They will be blessed in what they do. Being blessed, this word, it even carries the connotation of being envied. It's this notion that those outside of the church, that that non-Christians would look at us. And even though our lives aren't perfect, even though we walk through hard times, even though we choose to live in such a way that seems strange and restrictive to others, That we will experience freedom, we'll experience blessing, we'll experience fulfillment and peace. And people will look at us and think, man, I don't even know exactly what it is, but I want what they have. You see, when we become doers of the word and not simply hearers of the word, yes, it will transform us personally at a soul level. But man, the even more incredible thing is that God also uses our obedience, our doing of the word, to transform the things and the people around us. You see, God, He is on a mission of restoring and redeeming the world and all of humanity to Himself. And he invites anyone who chooses to follow Jesus to be a part of the work that he's doing in this world. Think about that. Like he wants me. He wants you to be a part of the work that he's doing in this world. And it is work that will bring us more purpose, more meaning, more joy, more fulfillment than anything we ever could have imagined in this life. But here's the key. The key is it requires us to take action. Like there's no such thing as a passive Christian. It will require us to not just hear the word, but to obey it, to do it, to live it out every single day of our lives. Because doing makes all the difference. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are such a good and loving God who has designed us intentionally and creatively and in extreme detail and who has set restrictions that will allow us to thrive and live our best life. God, thank you for being a God who doesn't just leave us in the dark to figure it out on ourselves, but you give us your word so that we can know what these right restrictions are. But God, I pray that we would be a church, we would be a people who don't just read your word and hear your word and listen to your word and even talk about your word, but God, that we would put action to it. That we would be a church who is known for being doers of the word, That even when it's challenging, even when it's difficult, even when it requires sacrifice or drastic changes in our life, that we would be so, so focused on doing your word, on doing what you command us, on obeying it fully, Lord, that others would even look and say, man, that seems crazy, but I want what they have. God, the only way we're gonna reach the East Bay, the only way we're gonna change the fabric of the East Bay is if we live differently than everyone around us. And so God, I pray that you would show us what those areas of our own life are that we need to change in order to be doers of your word and that we would live it out every single day of our lives wholeheartedly. I love you, Father, and we pray these things in your son's matchless and mighty name. Amen.